Hi, and welcome to another episode of Garmology, a podcast about clothes and stuff. Now, my guest today is coming in from London, I believe, and has the longest LinkedIn profile I have ever seen. So clearly, my guest Mosin is uh, this Yoda-like figure, 150 years old, with uh, clones aplenty. Or would you like to introduce yourself? Hi, guys. Oh, thank you so much, Nick, for um, inviting me on. Yeah, I'm extremely excited. Um, yeah, that LinkedIn profile. Do you know I, mean? I just listed all the stuff that I've done. I don't know why people are very um, selective on their LinkedIn profile and only listing you know, their, their most important jobs, but I list it all. I think it's just more, more better. I think there was one time where I didn't list one job and it came back to haunt me. So I, someone had a go at me for not putting it on my profile. So now I just list everything and it makes a lot more sense. But yeah, as a result, many people don't believe the things that I've actually done as a result of it. But that's only because uh, as soon as I graduated about 20 years ago, I straight away went into denim like design. So I've been a denim designer for for about 20 years now. So working for practically everyone. So yeah. Is denim designer what you introduce yourself as at a cocktail party? Yeah, I, I get a bit embarrassed saying the word designer for many years. I still have a little giggle effect, giggle effect when I said it. But um. Now I'm very much confident I say I'm a denim designer, but I'm obviously I'm, I'm trained as a multi-product designer. So that basically everything and denim, but um, for the last 20 years, I focused more on denim and like workwear. So I just say I'm a dead, I'm a denim designer now. But really that's just a sort of small part of what you do. Yeah, I, I guess so. I, yeah. Um, obviously um, I, I do everything from marketing now. I didn't really realize it for many years. Like, we used to design collections for clients and myself, but then we would end up doing the photo shoot and doing the ad campaign and doing the magazine advert and writing all the blurb and doing the press releases. And I didn't know, I didn't know 10 years ago that that was marketing. I just thought it's selling a collection. So now um, the last 10 years of my career, I've been working a lot with mills and designing fabrics and designing concept collections, which is a big part of what I do. And it's immensely fun, immensely fun. So, yeah. So we'll get back to that in a bit, but if we rewind 20 odd years back in time to you were a young lad mm -hmm. getting ready after sixth form to study something, yeah, was there a course around called Denim Designer? No. Um, when I, uh, I knew when I was very young, um, I'm talking like 10 years old, something like that, I knew I, I, I went to a, um, a quite a good school in, in like Brighton, and in that school, we had like textile, like GCSE, and we had all these and art GCSE, and I got I got to play around in like textiles. I'm talking pre GCSE time, and when the choice was made to choose either art or textiles, I chose textiles, and only because I thought at the time textile people could do everything art art people can do, but more. Because I wasn't too fond of doing some of the things that they were doing in art class, but I really enjoyed playing with fabric and also still painting and all the rest of it. So I didn't think I had a career in fashion. That's not what I thought of. And then um, when I finished my GCSEs, I, I, did, I knew I didn't want to do A-levels. I wasn't that academic. as I wasn't, all the rest of my family were, but I wasn't, I was, every, everything, all my grades were at the Ds and Es, I'll be honest with you. But when it came to anything art-based, I was getting Bs and As. So I was more of an artistic, I knew from a very early age. So I looked into it and, uh, there was actually a textile course um, in a town called Worthing, which is only about 15 or 18 miles away from where I lived. And I decided to, to go to uh, Northbrook College to do my ND in fashion, like textiles. Again, 
I didn't think I'd be a designer. I just enjoyed the art and design part of it and the textile part of it. I was more more into like sort of like knitwear actually. I, I didn't think of myself as a denim person at that stage. But yeah, that that was the career path that I I took. I just I loved illustration. I like manga. I like I loved all that. I loved the drawing aspect of it as well. And and I loved um I really enjoyed illustration. There was um an amazing uh, denim uh, not denim amazing illustrator called J Julie Verhoeven, and I used to go over all of her work in the in 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 like the sunday times style magazine you know this is when i was like 15 16 years old so i knew i thought i'll become an illustrator i'll be honest with you, with you. so yeah that was my uh, early uh, early path but you went to college then and you were interested in knitwear could you knit yeah i can knit i, I can do fully i can even knit the garment that you're wearing today yeah i can knit <laughs> i think of myself as a very strong knitwear designer but then um and even my final I did in my ND, which is when I was about 17, 18 years old, was a knit was a knitwear piece. It wasn't at all workwear or, or like anything. But then I ended up going to uh, a fashion like university called like Westminster, which is in in the top in in like the top top tier. You know, you, you get the St Martins and the Kingstons or, 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 or of them all, and then Westminster's up there in like the top three or three or four. And I knew, I knew even at that stage, I knew I wasn't much of a strong designer, but I wanted to learn and I wanted to, you know, so I was advised to go to one of the smaller colleges like a Kingston or Westminster. Cause um, if you go to St. Martin's or somewhere else, which where my wife went, went, went to, you wouldn't necessarily be helped as much. You'd be in a, a much bigger classroom. And I wanted to go somewhere where I was a classroom of maybe 20 kids. So I went to Westminster. And I think it was the best decision that I made because I learned, the craft of pattern cutting and and uh, and quite non-commercial design. I'll be honest with you. I didn't design anything commercial in my BA what's whatsoever. But I learned how to do commercial pieces based on the back of that. And but pattern cutting and illustration and learning how to fit properly were the things that I learned a lot on. And then my first job out of university was working for uh, Okini, which ended up doing the Levi's accounts, and that's how my career in denim actually like began. So, yeah. so that's when you developed the interest, is it? Yeah, I, I thought denim actually was kind of like beneath me. I know it's a really sad thing to say, but I was when I was at university, it was all about tailoring and fit. And um, denim to me was just it was a simple, simple jean. I didn't think it was that complicated. I, I, I was making complicated ergonomic garments and fitted garments for like women's wear. I considered, I still consider myself a women's wear designer, but I ended up doing a lot more men men's wear in the last like twenty years. But um, but for me, it was all about fit and, and denim at, you know, when I graduated, it wasn't about fit denim at that stage in the, in, in, in the early two thousands was really baggy and, and quite ballsy. Obviously the, the Levi's red collection came out in, in like 99. And I remember seeing it, but when I, when I graduated, it was still heavily loose fitting garments and, and ill fitting garments and very bad quality denim, which is, which I, I, was, I was like, well, I, I was like well aware of. But then when I started working for Okini, and my first jobs actually working for that company was was working for like Levi's Japan and like Levi's Europe and Ivisu. So I got I got to I got thrown in the deep end in the first three years of my career, working for some of the best denim companies straight away. And and um, once you get the denim bug, you don't really lose it. So and and then I ended up going to Cone Denim College in like North Carolina. I got invited to go to their denim college there, and um. I learned so much more about weaving and spinning and it really kick-started my entire career. So those years when you sort of first got into denim, that must've been a few years before the, the sort of denim boom really set yeah, in. Absolutely. 
I, I was completely not aware of it, really. I, obviously, I learned about selvage denim and I learned about reading fabrics. And at that stage, you know, there wasn't the Turkish mills or the Pakistani mills making amazing fabric. It was only the Japanese mills who were making mind-blowingly amazing stuff. And, um, you know, the, there was, um, even when I did, I did my first collection, I think it was in, in 2003, I did a collection for, for Cone Denim. I, I, actually, it was actually, it was actually doing a project for Duffer of like St. George. And they told me we would only do a collection with Okini if we can get Cone Denim to work, work, work with us. Obviously, I was the go-between. So I ended up getting Cone Denim literally on the phone. I think I emailed uh, uh, Ralph Thorpe, but I didn't know, I didn't know who he was then. And then um, he happened, I get him, I got him on the phone and we ended up designing one of the first Loom State selvage fabrics. This was way before Roy or any, anyone. We're talking 10 years like prior to, to, all, to all of that. And um, I, I um, yeah, it was me who brought Cone Denim back into Europe, which is quite funny. But then that, I didn't know, you know, so it was just one of these things. And I learned about how to, how to do cotton concepts. Cotton concepts is when you merge different cottons from all over the world to get a specific slub pattern. So I did all, all of that while I was at Okini. And then uh, after Okini, I went, went over to like Edwin Europe and I helped to establish the European branch of like Edwin. So there's a lot of things I did early in my career, which are mind blowing. And I even did, um, I even did like Levi's very first laser, laser, laser collection. So this was back in, in, I think it was like 2002 or so. So this is when Levi's America and Europe didn't think much of a, of a laser machine. And only the Levi's Japan guys were keen on the idea but only as a artistic um, experiment. So at Okini, we only made a hundred or so pieces every collection. So it was just a nice experiment for us to play with a laser machine. And I, I was the one who's, who was like, nominated to do it. So. Was that for cutting out the fabric or was no, it? No, that was for actually laser burning on patterns. So if you come across any, um, any new kind of denim pieces that you find in the high street, even at major stores now, you find all the whisker patterns and all these breakage marks are done with laser like machines. Um, only only oh. to save time and also to save energy and use less chemi less chemicals so um the early part of my career was experimenting on those machines way before it became commercial so um, i'm def i'm definitely one of the earliest designers to experiment with denim and like laser uh, uh, for sure so yeah and that was to replace the processes which were getting a lot of bad press well at that time you know it, it, it wasn't about that it was just everyone knew that um Everyone knew sandblasting was bad. And it, it, actually, in the early part of my career, it was never even like discussed about the bad chemicals that we're using to, you know, if we, you know, I, I, I'll give you an example. I would design something like, I don't know, 60 pairs of jeans every, every, every season. Each one had a different washing, washing treatment. So there was a different wash standard for every jean. And, you know, you would just give that, you would give that wash standard to the factory and they'll, they'll try and match it to your fabric. How they did that, it wasn't really... Um, it wasn't even that important. It was just like, what I just asked, how much does it cost? What's the cost factor here? And they'll tell me, well, we have to use 10 different processes. It takes 30 hours to do that wash. So it takes this, so it costs X amount. It costs X, X amount. It's only in, probably in the last five or six years where I've um, been taking care of a lot, lot more of what kind of treatments I do on my, my fabric. And, and even the workers that, even the workers that use these harsh chemicals, I've, I've been more aware to it, but that's only because, I've been traveling so much to all of these places that make all the, all the garments and weave all the, all the fabric. So I've changed as a designer, um, and even down to the fact that for the last three years, we've been working for like Tencel as their main clients and Tencel makes some of the world's most like sustainable fiber. So it's like, you know, it's really changed the way I think, uh, 
how denim should be made but i'm still a uh, i'm still a lover of selvage and i'm still a, a lover of ring ring and all the rest of it but i think there's a lot of clever ways to weave fabric and dye fabric now which which are going to come into their own or if not have already started so if we can just talk a bit about the the treatments the washes the sandblasting the the whatnots has that actually improved absolutely goodness me when i started my career we were using some of the worst chemicals you can imagine like carcinogenic ones to sandblasting was banned in the time that i started but we're getting to a point now where pp pp spray or uh, potassium permanganate i can't say that properly um this is the kind of bleach spray that is pretty much put on every every single gene that you would buy in the high street and um now many more people are walking away from it and coming up with more ingenious ways and more sustainable ways to do it they're using ozone so they're using air particles to make to convert to water to spray with and there's loads of other clever things you can do to make a make a gene look like it's been aged and you don't have to use harsh chemicals and don't have to use sandpaper anymore you don't need to and and, and it's only with the latest like technology from like genealogia and like tornello who are the two main two major companies who are coming up with all of these sustainable ways of, of making and finishing garments that it's really changed in the last 10 years like big time you know and and in some ways it do, it costs costs even less so it, it's quite remarkable and um because at the end of the day every single customer every single person no one wears wears raw jeans i know like so i know sort of like you and i do and so we're in a very small small like percentage not anyone wears raw jeans they have to be rinsed or in every single garment you buy in the store has had a treatment on it a softening treatment or something's happened to it to make it so it's not rigid any anymore and there are obviously processes involved with the fabric itself to, to make it so it's pre-shrunk with like sort of sort of, sort of samphorization and all the other newer newer like techniques as well to to, 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 to do that. But at the end of the day, every single person that buys denim, pretty much everyone wants it to be laundered in some way, even if it's a rinse. So we have to come up with, it's our responsibility, me as a denim designer, to come up with ways to convince companies to walk away from these these ways of finishing because at the end of the day it's very cheap to buy all these bleach sprays it's very cheap to carry on doing what we're doing but at the end of the day it's not good for the worker it's not good for the environments where these garments are made and um and we have been you know the last 10 15 years we've been seeing it a lot in media campaigns and stuff but it's just um there is a lot of a lot of like, lot of like greenwashing as well so there's a lot of people telling fibs on, on they're doing great stuff and and uh, they're not so it's calling out those types of people but no there are amazing solutions to finish and wash garments now that are easily um, um 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 easily accessible even even to a point where you know you would imagine all of these kind of uh, um, these environments where they wash jeans are very bad and in like industrial states but you can get a brand new denim factory in the middle of, of a town center you know it's you can have a like candiani mills for instance in italy they're in and they're in a nature reserve so you can have these big industries in, in places that you'd never imagine because how they're treating and taking care of the water and taking care of the some chemicals that, that they are using and having systems that are completely closed closed loop so they wouldn't no one would have interacted with them it's pretty and pretty awesome so yeah the solutions are, are definitely there and i'm encouraging everyone I'm, I'm educating all the young younger designers to learn about them now rather than learn about them in 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 like the industry it's quite ironic, really, because the whole heritage denim scene was all about having 
selvage denim that was um, sort of all blue and stiff and natural mm. and you'd break it in and make it your own and all this and i my wife loves making fun of me and my cardboard trousers uh but i, I mean i'm that weird guy who thinks that the, the day you put them on is the best day and from there on it's all downhill <laughs> yeah no it's true uh, i really enjoy wearing raw and i as i said I, when i started working for okini 20 years ago and i learned about selvage denim and i got my first um I, I think i wore my first raw jeans in that period and i think within the first couple of weeks of joining that company and i realized that everything that i owned up until that point was crap i, I literally when you have that realization going oh my god my whole wardrobe is this naff and it's cheap and so from that point onwards i literally did just got rid of everything and you know i started again but I, I then started learning more about the fabric and i've been in love with them um, understanding how to read fabric so you know you, you know there's beautiful denims that wash down in a really nice way so when you become a designer and you go start going to trade shows and you start buying fabric you start learning about how you know, if you want to achieve that wash pattern maybe you need a slubby denim to do or maybe you want something a bit luxe or or maybe you want a certain appearance so it's it's a really addictive thing really addictive thing because there i was thinking as a designer denim denim is just easy it's a five pocket jean it's not it, you know i didn't think of it as a, a tailored sophisticated garment where even the the, the, the thread color is such a big thing you know you, the awesomeness of like the type of thread color you use or the type of bartak you use or, or whatever it is it's it, you can go into depth so so deep in a pair of jeans and when i teach students now who are you know 18 years old they get their mind is blown when they come away from the session like sort of like with me i've i've converted a lot of young people into a really amazing denim like designer which i'm quite proud of because at the end of the day five pocket jeans is kind of uh, the template for everything isn't it it hasn't really changed, actually, Nick. You know, actually, the five pocket jean that you and I wear like today was pretty much standardised around 1922. So up until that period, obviously, jeans, you know, that they were they were patented or made by Levi Strauss and Jacob Davis, and the patent date is May 20th, you know, uh, 1873. That's the date that we all say is the birth of the blue jean. But me being a denim historian, I, I know the period is much more earlier than that. It didn't just appear out of nowhere, but you know, that's the day that everyone always says. But up until that point, from the 1870s to the 1920s, the jean changed quite a fair bit. You know, an extra pocket was added, a tool pocket was added, the shape kind of changed, the yoke yoke shapes changed. But it was pretty much standardized with the jean that we know now, with the small coin pocket and the two back pockets and the chain stitch construction. It was literally 1922. That's when the belt loops were first, first like brought, sort of brought on. But up until then it changed a little bit and, it, you, and the further you go back the more tailored these garments actually like sort of like become and that's 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 actually you know the fact that you can trace a pair of jeans that, that jacob Dave, davis made who, who was a tailor that invented the jean the coin pocket wasn't was put on by him if you look at one of these jeans from the 1870s it's got a curved waistband it's got ergonomic details that you would never think about at all in a pair of jeans but it looks so 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 simple and so so beautiful and that's what jeans are they are tailored in origin but the one that we wear hasn't changed for more than more than 100 years now so 1922 is when it was pretty much standardized how you know if you look at a jean from that period now and it's the only garment where you can wear if you picked up another garment from the 1870s you most people will think you're going to a fancy dress party right denim is the only thing that hasn't really changed at all so it's quite like remarkable and it's going to out 
outlist and outlast of both of us, really. So, yeah. So if that's the basic template, I mean, how many variations have been made over that little template? Hundreds. And the thing is, everyone always credits like Levi Strauss and Jacob Davis. But in that period, for between 1870 to 1920, there were so many more workwear companies doing overalls. And they weren't called jeans at, at this stage. And there was many more. You know, we kind of know about because of the, like the Carhartts and all the rest of them that came about straight after. But there was many more like Sweet or Boss of the Road. And half most of these companies, they got bought out by their com- by their competition. So I, I say this to my students. It's like kind of like tech tech companies. When a one tech company goes under, the other tech company buys all, all of its patents. That's exactly what happened. So Lee actually owns Boss of the Road. They own a lot of the patents from some of these older brands and they don't do anything like with it. I think they might they might make a t-shirt of it saying like can't can't bust them but that's pretty that's pretty much it which is quite sad but a lot of these old patents are remarkable to look at because you can learn a lot about the in the like sort of like ingenious things that they were doing and there was a 20-year period up until i think 1890 or so where no one could use rivets like levi's had the patent for like sort of rivets and no one was allowed to u- use them so there was a lot more ingeniousness and a lot more creativity from the 1870s to about the 1890s period. And if you come across any workwear during this, especially overalls and, and denim and that, you know, five pocket jeans, and it, they're all amazing. Their waistbands are differently constructed. It's quite remarkable what they've done. Interesting cinch back buckles, interest, just really interesting shaped pockets, uh, pockets. That obviously they weren't allowed to use rivets. So that's when they were hiding the pockets inside the top of the yoke. They were doing really clever like constructions because obviously the, the one thing about rivets, which was a great marketing tool, was, you know, they held your jeans together. They held your pants together. And a lot of these miners and these garments were made for one purpose and one purpose only. They were made for miners. They weren't fashion items at this stage. They were workwear. So people wanted to get the, the most amount, most for their money. So, yeah, it, any stress points, that's where you'd have a little bar tack or, or a rivet. But if any, any young designer wants to look at some really creative garments, Look at eighteen uh, seventies to eighteen nineties. Some of the best denim pieces were invented in that period, and I guess today only available as sort of specialty uh, productions from very small brands. That's it, and you get companies in like Japan, like Warehouse, and some of the others, and and they would often find bits of these garments, or they bought them from other collectors, and they would like recreate them. And I do the same thing. Like I often buy literally scraps of denim pieces that have a, a tiny bit of the pocket and a tiny bit of the front front yoke or whatever or even the front pocket or even the fly and just from that small amount you can design the entire jean because there are certain rules when you look at garments so if there's a twin needle stitch and it's like you know three and a half mil wide you can work out exactly what the rest of the jean will look like or if you've got some evidence of the back then you can work out how the shape of the back pocket is like so it's quite a fun little task and i as a designer for the last 15 years i've been looking at lots of really old garments to get educated about that's what i've been doing so uh, i think it's the only way to learn actually is through vintage i'll be honest with you and you know yes it's, it's great um there's lots of great resources now amazing books that are out but they're not they're not many of them that are around and they sell out really really like quickly and i feel sorry for younger young, younger designers who are only coming into the scene now you know i've had a 20 year head start so i've got an archive of amazing books and amazing garments but i know if i started to do it now it'd be impossible for me to find and like or just too expensive so i that's the reason why i I have denim workshops and I show people my archive and I want more people to see the stuff that I've collected. And I think it's quite important. And I guess all the old mines in the, the U S have been uh, 
spelunked and emptied and uh, raided of any little scraps of old jeans that might have been? We've actually only scratched the surface. Like, yes, there's there's collectors like Britt Eaton and Michael Allen Harris and and a few others and a few other really important guys who who aren't on the radar, who aren't on the like Discovery Channel that are going out and uh, uh, risking their lives to, to every summer to go down for a couple of weeks and try and find stuff. But we're only scratching the surface. There's I remember seeing a map of mine as a, as a guy in Greensboro called Evan who's got a shop called Hudson Hill. Really amazing guy. You should like, go and you know, check him out. But I remember visiting him in Greensboro and he showed me an old uh, uh, railroad map of this part of America. And he goes, all of these towns are ghost towns now because these, this railway doesn't exist anymore. But you can, if you, you know, if you've got a week or so, you can go on a road trip. You can find these old ghost, ghost towns. You get permission. You can go into these abandoned buildings, go down mines, and you can find stuff. You can find a lot of stuff. So actually, we're only really scratching the surface, but it's immensely, immensely dangerous. And, um, and you know, I'm, I'm very, I'm, I would love to do it, but my wife has said, you're not allowed to do it because it's so, so dangerous. But wouldn't it be amazing to find a really old piece? I'm not even that interested in finding Levi's. I'm interested in finding early workwear because Levi's are just one of the companies. That, that Obviously, if you find a, a Levi's garment from that magic period, it'll be amazing. And I've got pieces from that archive. I've got pieces from that period anyway in my own archive. So I, I'm not in a hunt for finding really old pieces. I now look at historically the older pieces that inspired that workwear. So I'm looking at the 1840s now. So a lot earlier period than the than the denim like workwear period. So that's what I'm like researching. So if the late 1800s were sort of tailored denim, what were the 1840s like? Oh, they were all about, um, they were interesting. They were like with the full fronts. They were, they had these stirrups like on the back, on the bottom of your hem. They were for riding trousers. They were very different, but everything um, evolves. So, you know, as I said, the shape, the jeans that we wear today, the back pocket is actually the shape of the tools that the workers were, 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 were having. And so everything's related. It's a bit like uh, army or military wear now. If you look at it, nothing was put there for no reason. So you need to understand that. And obviously the early jeans only had one back pocket because most people were right-handed. So it's just, it's just very, in, very, very it's so interesting. And, and you can learn so much about it. And even there's been a big, um, there's something that I'm involved with regarding, I'm, I do a lot of hemp denim at the moment, a lot of, not, not because it's trendy, only because I've been experimenting for the last six, seven years with hemp. And I've, I've come up with, the, with one of the earliest hemp-based sort of collections. And there's early evidence, actually, that some of the earliest Levi's jeans might have been hemp, not a cotton. So Levi's themselves are saying that's not true. But to be honest, their own archive was burnt in like sort of like not in, in like 1906. So they they don't really know themselves. So, you know, so um, we never know. We might find this hemp uh, variant of their garment, which, because the early garments... They weren't. Uh, they weren't. They weren't three by one indigo dyed. They were uh, two over two canvas. They were a duck duck canvas. So uh, that's the one that was on the on the original patent. So um, anyway, it's very interesting. But the story of denim is still still evolving. There's still amazing pieces that are being found, even even less than a couple of months ago. Newer pieces that people didn't know, like sort of sort of like existed. So it's it's an open book still, and the history is still being like written. That's pretty amazing, really. <laughs> <laughs> but uh i mean one thing is that you're still finding stuff but there's also that there's so much interest in everything that can be found uh you'd have thought that there would be examples of pretty much anything ever made no no already found levi's you know they had the because of the earthquake in like sort of, of san fran in 1906 and then the fire that happened afterwards 
they lost their entire archive. They lost, because Levi's is one of the only companies that, even I do it, when I make a garment, I always make, make uh, one for myself for my archive. Even if it's just, I make two pieces, I always make one just to have in my own archive. Because, you know, I move on, I move on to another collection. Levi's did the same thing. They had an archive of every single piece they had ever made. Plus they had catalogs and actually illustrations for every single garment. And that's how they knew about some of these missing pieces through all the catalogs and into illustrations. So there was a jacket that was found only quite recently, which blew up the internet. A new, another jacket, which they didn't know like existed. And they knew it existed, but they didn't have, have a, phys of a physical piece of it. So, you know, we're still finding stuff. And, and, you know, and most denim historians and most other people are researching how the fabrics were woven. Obviously, we, we know most of the time it was a two by one or for three by one. But, you know, and the cotton itself has changed so much as well, even in the last hundred years. It's been like genetically like modified so much, just like our food. So you, you might be able to find an old garment. You might be able to like recreate it, you know, pretty much the same with the same pattern cutting and the rest of it. But it's all about the type of cotton that you use and the rest of it. But for me, I'm a bit beyond that now. I, I want to use more sustainable fibers. I want to use tensile and hemp. And I'm more excited about those kind of things, and um, which I think is the way that I'm a more, more of a modern designer rather than someone who's just like a, a, a like sort of a nerd who's just into making like repro, which I'm not. I love making historically correct garments, but I like doing doing. I like finishing them. I like laser finishing them. I, I like. I, I made a range. I made a collection for like ten for like ten cell, and I was in a photo shoot, and everyone who was helping me in the photo shoot didn't believe me that these garments were made like like sort of like one week ago, because we had sustainably finished all of them, um, and they looked like vintage garments from the 18, 1870s, How I how we had finished them. So that's the trick now. Is to is to is to trick people somewhat. I like doing that. It's just quite a fun little thing that that, that I do. All right, we'll get back to the environmental aspects in a bit. But I wanted to ask you a bit about uh, collecting vintage machinery. Hmm. That's a yeah. big part of it as well, it's isn't a, it? It's a very big part of it, and I think um, there's not many people that actually do it. I, I think in the UK, I can have I can list everyone in in maybe two or two or three fingers. It, there's not many. There's not many of us who are into this kind of thing. Like worldwide, probably 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 a dozen or so. And luckily for me, we're all quite we're all quite friendly. So our little all the people that collect like machines, most of us are quite cool with the, with each other. But no, how it started for me was when I started buying vintage and looking at old garments, and I realized, oh, that bar tack is is really nice. So I'll take a really high res picture of it with a little ruler next to it. Then I'll go to a factory in China or Hong Kong or even even Japan and. I'll say, I want this bar tack on this part of the garment. And they'll go, so, I'm so sorry, um, that machine doesn't exist anymore. I was like, oh, okay. And I said, oh, but we have this other one. Um, it's a slightly different machine, but that's the one that we have. So I had, a, I had a lot of that in my early part of my career. And um, so I started researching what machines were used on these early workwear jeans. It's, it's, it's not difficult. It's a very hard thing to do. But if you ask the right technicians and they'll tell you, oh, that was done on a Singer Blah, blah, blah. All these technicians who are in their 70s and 80s, they know the machine, but it just doesn't exist anymore. You know, it's been buried or destroyed. So I, I was think I think I'm one of the first people to document the Union Special 43200G and the darning machine, the repair machine. I probably am one of the first people. And what it was, I'm I'm all, always about sharing knowledge. And I think some people have got a bit upset about it because they're saying because of you. The prices of all of this machinery skyrocketed, all because of and literally I've been blamed, I've been abused on the internet like because of it. Oh. And I was like sitting in, well, if it wasn't for me, you wouldn't even know about this like sort of like machine. Or you, you know, so it's it, it's it goes hand in hand. But no, um, I I 
when I was, it was, it was about the 10 year mark. So I was living in Singapore at the time. I, I was working for like sort of like DKNY jeans. I hadn't physically made anything for 10 years up until that point. So remember I started as a design, as a, as a fashion designer. I went to fashion school. I learned how to pattern cut. I learned how to sew. And then the first 10 years of my career, I had not sewn anything. I was just a, a normal, a day-to-day designer. I was designing on the computer. I was drawing, of course. I was going to factories, explaining what I wanted, but I hadn't actually physically made anything. So I made a decision at the 10-year t- mark that I wanted to go back to sewing again and pattern cutting. And then I said, well, if I'm going to do that, let me research the machinery that I need to buy. So um, I think um, I bought about seven or eight machines when I was living in the Far East, including some of them really prized, like the prized ones that everyone would cut off their arm for. I managed to find them fairly cheap, fairly cheaply. Came back to the U- UK set up my consultancy and yeah, set up, set up my mini factory really. And now I've got now about 27 machines now, which is quite insane, but I know people who have got, who have got, who have got over a hundred. So it's just, you know, you can, if you go to any denim factory, there's a machine for everything. There's a machine for a belt loop. There's a machine for a bar tack. There's many machines for, for buttonholes. There's many types of chain stitch machines. There's twin needle machines. There's twin needle machines that are narrow and wide. And there's, there's, you know, there's a machine for every type of job. Cause obviously in a factory, they need to make a jean really fast. And if there's one person just going around lots of machines, it doesn't really make sense. So they have a, a like sort of like conveyor belt type system where they pass the gene along and within three or four minutes, it's the whole thing's made. So um, I learned about the newer machines. And then at the same time, I learned about the older machines. And the old, what's great about old machines is they have imperfections, a bit like a bit like the looms that the fabric is made on. You know, the older the loom, the, the more, the more I don't know, difficult it is to use. They're, they're old, they're antique machines. They're, everyone always thinks oh, it must be really easy I'm like, no no um it's a very hard process because you find i often find old machines and they're partly broken there's bits missing off them i sometimes buy two of them i frankenstein them. i get a technician to frankenstein them like together so there's a big cost involved and then at the same time these old machines were some of them were made when it was like treadle when it was like using your foot power so you have to find you have to figure out what kind of motor you're going to use on it and I get really slow energy saving motors so they don't make any noise. And, and so I'm all about let's do it in the most sustainable way. This is before sustainability was a big thing. I just, these old style motors, you know, they're so dangerous, these these type of motors, you know, they, you can put like chainsaws on them. They're really dangerous and they can blow up. And I've had a machine caught fire once. So for me, it's like when I buy a machine, I often replace the motor straight away. I don't even turn it on. I just get the, get rid of the, the motor, put my own motor on cut the table t- table down and it's quite a fun little task a bit like being in like woodwork class really but no i've got 27 machines now but the thing is you can't be a good designer if you don't know about your machines and, and the, the moment you figure out everything's done in inches and as well that was a, a mind-blowing thing for me is that you know i, I got taught in centimeters and see I'm, I'm so you know so but actually all of these machines even modern machines they're made in inches so if you understand how jeans and workwear are made you know with a a quarter needle edge stitch or twin needle edge stitch or three sixteenth or one eighth. If you start understanding those measurements, you actually become a better designer instant, instantly, instantly. And that's when I started researching old machines. So yeah, I, I, it's a habit that it still hasn't, yeah, it's, it's a very addictive thing. And, and luckily for me, some of these machines you can get for a couple of hundred pounds, but then some of them are worth, end up being worth five to six to 10 grand a pop. So it's, it's a definitely something that can be a business if you wanted to just selling old like machines, which I don't really do, but I do sometimes help a few people with, with, with their machines. So I do end up doing it because I seem to be, I seem to find quite a lot, a lot of them. So I often do 
help people. But yeah. Uh, what one aspect I like of the old machines is that they were made so beautiful looking. Uh, I'm just looking at a couple of old singers above the screen here, and they're just so polished and lacquered and embellished. But you don't really see that on modern machines now. There, no, no, modern machinery, even the latest modern machines that you buy now, that are you know, two or three, five grand. Half the half the half of the components are plastic. So um, even I have a te- I have a technician who comes to visit me every six months just to service my like machines. And he's always in awe when he services my machine. He goes, wow, this machine, it's made so well. Even the parts, and he takes the machine apart, individual parts are very heavy. You know, he goes, the type of metal they've used here, it's like real metal. It's like nowadays metal is like with other components and to make it cheaper. He goes, this is like real. And you can feel how heavy it is. And, you know, and these machines, they will outlast me as well. I'm just a like custodian of them, really. I'm just, just taking care of them. I'm using them for my own business. But in 20, 30 years' time, I'll probably give them to someone else or a museum or somewhere. But um, no, they're awesome, these old machines, and they do look great. And you know, every era, the earlier machines were black, and then you get the more um, gray-looking machines and the green-looking machines. And the new modern machines that have been made in the last 10 years, white is the color that you find them in. So every generation, they, uh, they, have, a, they have a rule where they change the color of the machine. So if you end up buying a new modern, like, uh, a new modern machine from Juki will probably be a white or cream color. So you can easily date machines really, really, really quickly. So most people say, I only buy blackheads. You know, they're the machines from the 20s and like 30s. Um, even though they look amazing, sometimes they don't run run like very well. So you have to be very careful when you buy old machines because it's a bit like old cars where they kind of fix them with newer parts and it doesn't really run, run really well. So you have to really know your machines and get someone to look at it before you invest five to 10 grand on one of these machines. So yeah. Uh, I'm often being asked to check if a machine is real uh, most of the time now, which is quite funny. Okay, do you mind checking this eBay post out? See if it's real. I'm not sure. So um, fun, very, very fun and very addictive and very dangerous. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I suppose it's uh, compared to cars, it's at least cheaper than classic cars, but uh, yeah, I agree. It's, uh, it's certainly similarities cheaper. are there. It's funny thing is we only just bought our first car maybe four years ago. You know, so I mean, I could have, we could have bought one ages ago. So my wife was like telling me, can we just buy the one machine that we need, like a dishwasher? So she often joked to me about that. I went, okay, yeah, sure, sure. So my, my uh, but yeah, my passion got a bit too much. But now now, now we're focused in baking our own studio here in West Sussex. And, and um, it's quite fun, actually. But no, yeah, it's, it, it's yeah, it could, you can run, we can run away with it. And, and I'm telling you, once you get into like machines, you realize they're everywhere. They're, and it's really dangerous, you know getting a waistband machine for 300 quid and getting it, it doesn't seem like a lot, but it, it ends up, you end up having a room full of it. Like my friend, Ben, who lives in Canada, his workshop, he's got more than a hundred machines just stacked up on the wall. Um, Cause there are lots of factories that are being stopped or they're being closed. And, you know, you go there and the guy just says, help yourself. And like, Oh my God. So, you know, these are like shoe factories and garment factories. And, you know, it's just shocking. And it's shocking how much has been like destroyed, you know, all these union special machines or whatever, like speaking to a guy in, in, in Hackney called Mark Morey, he's got a shop there. And he was telling me like in the eighties, he sold, he sold out hundreds of these Hemi machines for 50 quid each and put it, he put it all in a, in a container and sent it all to Hong, sent it all to Hong Kong. So it's like, you know, he's telling me we couldn't get rid of them. And now there were five to seven grand each a pop, you know, 50 quid a machine only in the eighties. So, you know, it's, it's, yeah, it's crazy. 
it's crazy thing. But yeah, I've kind of ruined it for a lot, a lot of people because I, I, I listed the price. I listed where the, where to find them. So a lot of people found them all. And yeah, a lot of people have made a living on just like machinery. Yeah. Wow. Which I should have done. <laughs> what I often really like is that the way they work is so intricate. Uh, today we solve lots of problems using electronics, but in those days they'd have the mechanics were so intricate. And if there's one machine I'd really like sort of on a personal level on my table here, it's one of the Reese buttonholers. Yeah. very One of the most scariest machines I've got. I've got a Reese 101. It's called the Iron Duke. And um, yeah, it's, it's remarkable because it's the first machine ever where they did an imitation buttonhole. That's what they called it. And basically most machines, if, you, if you've ever seen a buttonhole machine work, you put the, the garment inside the machine and you press the button and the garment moves, the work hmm. moves. The Reese machine, it moves around the garment. There's less chances of the buttonhole going wrong. Um, but it means the whole machine is moving and it's got a chain at the same time. Lots of moving parts, extremely noisy, very dangerous. And, you know, it's such a small thing it's doing, but it's such a massive machine and it makes such a small stitch. It's quite crazy. Hmm. But that's how much force it's got. It needs all that that mechanical strength to just do that small tiny stitch and um yeah i ended up recently getting a embroidery bartek machine that was the le latest machine i ever got and what i did is i was really interested in um then if you're familiar these wrangler jackets that have these circle bartaks that go down they're mm -hmm. called like dot they're called like dot tacks and um wrangler did it first and i'm i'm my task now for the next many years is to design the design the most sustainable gene i can that means not just the fabric i'm using or how it's woven but also the components like rivets and buttons and buttons that can be easily like removed and rivet every all the components can be broken apart so it can be put in a landfill without causing much problems so I, i've been looking at doing circular bar tax which is quite a fun thing but i just looked at the past again as i said learning from the past is the best method so in the past they've come up with everything honestly everything so there was a circular bar tax machine I managed to find that machine, but it was so complicated to fix and um, very expensive. It was costing like maybe like seven, eight grand to get it fixed. And I was like, forget it. So I ended up buying a modern machine that I can embroider my own pattern on. And it's about a four by six rectangle, anything I like, anything. I like. And it's super strong. It's meant for Bartax. So you can do smiley faces, uh, circle Bartax, triangles, normal buttonholes, you name it. So I programmed the actual circle Bartax that Wrangler did. I got the original patent drawing. It's to the, I know exactly what size it is. And I actually drew it out exactly and it works perfectly. So, um, yeah, so I've been doing that and it's really quite fun. Sorry, I forgot your question about, about buttonhole machine. But yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, I was, I was just going to comment that when, when the Reese sort of finishes up its buttonhole and that final slam, when it cuts the hole open, I mean, it's just brilliant. It is brilliant. And you can get, um, a Reese machine. You can set it up differently. So it cuts the hole first. There's a cut before and cut after. You, so you've seen the cut after method, but some of our Japanese friends, they do the cut before, which is highly dangerous. So it cuts it first, then it sews around the stitch and it makes a cleaner buttonhole. But the problem is if you do the cut before and it's in the wrong place, you're screwed because you've ruined the garment. So there's a, there is a switch that you can press and it immediately stops the machine. So you can take it out and just undo the stitching and put it back in again and press the buttonhole. So, the cut before is a very dangerous thing to do. But you see a lot of our Japanese friends doing that, and the buttonhole looks even more better than a cut after because cut after has got loose threads and stuff. So um, I haven't I haven't dared to do that method yet, but I can do it with a flick of a switch. I can do like cut, cut, cut before. 
I'm sure the otaku uh, denim crowd have a Japanese expression for this. Uh, I'm sure they do. Yeah. Failure is coming. <laughs> I'm sure they do. There's a phrase for, for everything that they've come up with. Yeah, I've got a little book from Capital that has all the Japanese to English like translations of all these denim phrases. It's really fun. Uh, right. Come come across it. Now, it was interesting you mentioned uh, making the most sustainable mm. gene possible because that has sort of been hanging over the whole denim jeans industry, the fact that there are a lot of environmental issues concerning jeans. Everything. <laughs> Let's start from the beginning. So, you know, everything from growing the cotton, the immense amount of water is being used. Cotton is grown in areas and countries where water is scarce. You know, you, our Japanese friends don't grow cotton. They get their cotton from India or Pakistan or China in areas where it's not half the time even like regulated, you know, so it, it's a real gray area when it comes to cotton. Even there's a whole thing quite recently about a part of China where they were using slaves to grow their cotton. And they found out all of like Uniqlo and Topshop and you name it, were using this type of cotton. So it, it's, it's a real gray area when it comes to cotton. First of all, it's another gray area when it comes to the chemicals used to grow cotton and the pesticides as well, but also the dye that's used, the indigo dye that we all love, you know, only in 1897, only up until 1897, we were using natural indigo. So chemical indigo was introduced around the 1897 like period. And um, even cone denim, for the very first part of the factory, they were using na natural indigo. But from the 1920s onward, they definitely 100% switched over to chemical. So what, what is chemical indigo? Well, it's made from rat poison. The main, it's made from the worst type of chemicals you can imagine. And that's what we use. And, you know, uh, it's shocking, absolutely shocking. You know, you would never put that on your skin, but we do. So, um, you know, it's, so that's a problem. The cotton's a problem. The dyes that we use are a problem. The weaving technology, the workers, how they, they're treated. Uh, the environments that we wash and make our jeans are also terrible. Like you go to any, any factory on the planet, most of the time they haven't got a recycling unit or they don't clean their water or they treat their workers really badly. It's it's been eye opening. My career has been really eye opening to a point where, you know, I no longer want to support. You know, I do a lot of marketing and making a lot of collections of big companies, and some of them I, I hold my hand up. I, I wish I didn't. So you know, so so um, now it's about telling good stories and and promoting better ways of working, and um, you know, using sustainable materials like tensile or hemp or or weaving stuff in a different way that uses better tech, better technology, or you, you, there's a new type of indigo based from a, a like bacteria, which has been like invented. There's a new type of indigo that comes from um, fungus, you know, so there's many other ways to get indigo now um, without the chemical, the harsh benzene related petrochemical based one. And also natural indigo itself has had a big like resurgence also in the last 10, like 10, like 15 years. I myself, did a natural indigo workshop with a really a real specialist back in like sort of like sort of like sort of like 2015. We we flew over Abu Bakr Fufana, who's a really well known uh, indigo specialist from Mali, and he taught a group of us how to indigo dye. And before it became really fat fashionable to do it, only because we all wanted to learn the the, the like traditional way of actually doing it. And you learn so much more when you use the real real stuff. But is it sustainable using natural indigo? Probably not. You need a football field to make a small amount of dye. That isn't sustainable either. It is beautiful for an artisan project. But, you know, when we got the likes of fast fashion, we're using a lot of dye. We need solutions that can be a drop-in replacement for those types of problems. You know, 
we're not going to stop making clothes. We're not going to stop buying clothes. We just have to try and influence the market. Even when I was at VF, um, you know, we, we opted to use organic cotton all of a sudden. That was that we ended up, we calculated it as more than five or 6% of world production we changed. Okay, that's not a big deal. It is a huge, big deal. So if these bigger corporations decide to move over to something more sustainable, it can have a massive effect on what's going on. And there's a supply and, supply and demand thing, really. But no, um, how we how we make and make our jeans is is quite shocking but there's lots of younger generation of designers that are learning the better methods and you know me teaching a young designer who's 18 19 years old in a few years time they might be a creative creative director of one one other another, another company or an existing company and they'll make better choices than some of the other designers have so that's my task now is to educate as much as i can and that's what i've been doing for the last like 15 years and it's pretty awesome fun as well um but no there's so many better ways to make jeans now that you and you would not not believe honestly it's fantastic i'm pretty pleased about natural indigo making more of a comeback um, just because it smells so nice when you get a pair which right it's quite different it's quite different yeah it, it, everyone would think it's really rich actually it's, it's a different kind of color really it's a different kind of shade of blue it, you can get those very deep blues that our japanese friends have that's more than 15 or 20 dips it's all about the dips right but indigo itself is a really interesting dye because it, it you know it different regions of the world came up with it at the same time and there's there's hundreds of different plants that make a natural indigo pigment you know in europe we were using woad in india and pakistan and parts of the far east they were using indigo so it's like you know even in south america it was, it was of indigo as well but indigo is named after the indian like, sort of, of that subcontinent you know so it was first cultivated and and used in the Indus Valley region, which is Pakistan. So it's it, it's it's very very interesting. But the natural indigo, it, it does smell quite interesting. There, you get different types actually. But um, yeah, you must have had a really good type. But I remember using and using natural indigo, and it smelled of poo. So it depends what kind of batch you've managed to find. Well, yeah, I was going to say more like pee, but uh, it, and it's yeah. also when you when you soak it, the water becomes sort of deep yellow. Yeah, it's like a greeny yellow color. That's what most people think is a blue dye. It's not. It's actually a green or yellow dye. It's only when the oxygen hits it, it goes blue. So um, that's why you should never shake a vat or put your hands in it really quickly. You're very gentle when you're working with indigo. When you pull it back up again, you massage the fabric or massage the, the yarn that you're dyeing. And then you wait for the oxygen to hit it and you make the oxygen hits, and then you put it back in again. And that's called one dip. And most of the time, People think it's like one or two dips. No, it's sometimes I did a natural indigo class and we did seven different shades of indigo. I think the first or two were like at the dip three and dip seven, but actually the end colors, which were practically nearly black, it was more like 30 or 40 dips. So you can carry on doing it and it just goes richer and richer and richer. And obviously our American friends, they came up with the rope dyeing method where when you dye yarn, it goes in a vat and it comes out again and it dries it and it comes out again and it dries it. That's why the core of the yarn still remains cream or white. So, and that's actually, they invented that way of dyeing actually to save money. It wasn't because it was, it was cool. They did it because they didn't want all the dye to, to penetrate the yarn. So um, it's just a, a cost cutting method, which is why we all love jeans today. Cause that's why they fade. If it doesn't fade, it's more like a Chino fabric. So, um, and that's the difference when you come across jeans that are different colors or pink or weird colors like this. And, they say I'm wearing a jean collection, which is a weird color. For me, that's not really denim. So um, even though it might be in a five pocket, like sort of silhouette, it's only 
if it's dyed with indigo in a rope dyeing method, I class it as a denim. So, yeah. Hmm. I think a lot of people get a bit confused or even um, tricked by jeans being called indigo when they yeah. are synthetically dyed and so forth. It's still called indigo. It's still indigo. It, it, it's just um, there's chemical indigo and natural indigo and powder indigo. There's different types. And but at the end of the day, the main ingredient for all the jeans that you and I wear, if they're not done with nat natural indigo, is benzene and rat poison and petrochemical base. So it's it's many more companies are saying it's more sustainable. They come up with newer dyes and newer methods to to do it. But at the end of the day, it's still very very bad. So there's no no denying it whatsoever. So yeah. It's odd that rat poison never is stated on the contents label. Yes. It might not be. They might, they might not say it, just call it indigo. But if you research what indigo, chemical indigo really is, it, it's shocking. It's shocking, yeah. all the, all the yeah. harmful chemicals. And you would never put that on your skin whatsoever. It will be a big warning label. But, you know, it's one of these things. It's like half the things that we yeah, – I remember when – my niece, oh no, when, when one of my sisters had her first kids, she washed every single garment before the baby was born. You know, she was, I don't know what's on it. And that's actually how we should be doing it. We should be washing everything before we wear it. But obviously we don't do that because you know, it's the wash off some of the chemicals, the like, residue that's been left on, on the garment. Cause there's always crap left on garments. Um, even though we mm. can't see it. So now as a true blue denim, uh, aficionado, where are you on stretchy jeans? Mm, um, the first part of my career, I wouldn't go near the stuff. I, actually, it's not that I didn't like it. It just didn't look good, I'll be honest with you. Um, you could see it a mile off. You could see the polyester and the lycra. You could see the shininess in between the indigo yarns. Something wasn't right. And that's actually, I started my career 20 years ago. So all these denims that I was introduced to in the early part of my career were these horrible, stretchy denims. And all the rigid denim that I saw or came across was more open-end. It was less, less slobbier. Actually, it was only um, in a time where I became a denim designer that it became more fashionable. And LVC started about '97. There's all these Japanese companies started the, the, the like Osaka Five started in that period. So the resurgence of good quality fabric happened roughly at the time when I started my career. Very lucky, very just good timing for me, really. Um, so I learned about between good fabric and bad fabric. Obviously, I'm not saying open end fabric is terrible or stretch denim is terrible. You can get amazing stretch denim now, which is fully sustainable, made with tensile, made with rubber. And so it's like it, it, it biodegrades. It, it's, it's amazing. And nowadays you can get stretch denim, which you would never, ever think isn't stretch at all. You would never believe it. So it's turned around a lot. In the last 10 years, it's like skyrocketed. Now, saying that, am I a fan of it? Not necessarily. Not necessarily. You know, for me, it, it's, it's okay. To be honest, the most people that are buying stretch jeans are, are not our, not our lady friends. It's actually most men, which is quite funny. So it's all these denim heads who, who are saying they're denim heads, but they wear the stretchiest jeans they can. Stretchy selvage jeans, which is really funny. Um, <laughs> so, you know, so but they want that comfort. Like most men, uh, most people just want comfortable things to wear. You know, and I understand that. And, you know, um, I get it. But for me, it's like, I, I personally like wearing 100% cotton. I, I like things to be a bit stiff. But that's me. I'm in a very, very small, like yourself, in a very small uh, uh, minority. But um, it, it's, um, what do I think of stretch denim? I, I don't necessarily don't like it. I don't mind it. I use it in some of the collections I design for clients. But I, I always want to see how it washes down. So if I pick a good stretch denim, I want to make sure it washes down so it doesn't look like stretch. That's the only thing that I try and make sure. 
Um, but um, that's my only rule, really. I, I want to make it look like it doesn't look like Scratch. Right. There was a photo going the rounds on Instagram a few months back which showed a pair of degraded uh, jeans with elastane in. And it was like probably all the cotton was rotted away, but you saw the whole yeah. outline of all the the synthetics the in thing. it still. It's polyester and microplastics, they don't go away. They won't go away. They've stayed there for hundreds of years. So if you have a stretch gene and it's got polyester in it and you bury it, you can still find the whole gene, you know. And even the thing, I think I'm... I know the picture, even even the leather patch was still there. So that was plastic too. And, you know, so it's like, you know, you could tell that that gene, it was remarkable. It looked like a piece of artwork. Um, but yeah, all the cotton had gone. And how these fibers are created, they've got, they've got the polyester or the lycra, like filament, filament going down the middle and the cotton is wrapped around it. So yeah, it's, it's still there. But, but as I said, these plastics don't go away. So, you know, we've caused ourselves so many issues and issues that we don't even realize. Like, you know, there's, there's a credit card amount of plastic inside each of us right now you know babies are born with plastic inside them plastic fibers and you know it's plastic has been found in mushroom in mushroom in mushrooms it's airborne you know there's so many of us that are sort of like infertile and, and the rest of it and we still don't know the real effects of what polyester has done to us in the last 50 60 years some of us know the scientists know and petrol petrol chemical companies know they're just uh making sure the attention isn't on them and you know I always joke, I always show a slide in my, my presentations every year. It's a, it's a slide that actually actually tells you what, what's in this garment. And it's like this garment is made with microfibers that if it's swallowed, it's harmful. It's like a proper disclaimer. And I, I always joke, this tag should be in every single Nike, Puma, Adidas garment. It won't be, but it should be. So, mm. uh, you know, it, it's a real disaster. And unfortunately, polyester for me is like the cancer of the industry, personally speaking. Yet we still see now a lot of recycled polyester being used. Well, I know there's a big thing about recycling polyester, and that's fantastic. But the thing is, the amount of energy that's used to recycle it, they respect how they do it is they do it either chemically or they do it mechanically. Most of the time, it's chemical because these fibers are so small, and they've got cotton inside them and polyester inside them. You have to do it in a solution, a, another chemical which isn't very good. So okay, first, so now you've separated the cotton and then the polyester. You can re respin the cotton very easily but the polyester is actually turns into a fine dust so it has to be done in a closed environment i think there's only one company in australia that's managed to achieve it only one so far there's many more that are trying to but why put all this energy in recycling polyester we shouldn't just be we shouldn't be using it anyway you know we shouldn't be using it so it, it's it's it, for me it doesn't make any sense you know it's still it's still polyester it's still plastic and half the time you can't recycle it and recycle it like if you recycle polyester it can only be recycled once or twice then it's back in the landfill again. It doesn't make any sense, you know. And I've got lots of polyester friends who argue me about it quite viciously. Going, more saying there's a future we should be using po recycled polyester, and I, I get it. And there's there is a need for it, like firefighters' outfits and, and God knows what. You need these stronger non-man-made fibers. You need them, of course you do, but not in a, a Primark gene or not in a Top Man gene or not in a gene that you and I wear. We don't need it. It's unnecessary. Mm -hmm. We're not, uh, we're not, we're not firefighters or doing something that's real manual lay labor. These are fashion garments. Um, we don't need it. At, uh, we can use hemp instead or other. And that hemp's the world's strongest natural, uh, nat, nat, natural fiber. It's had such a stigma about it, you know, ever since the twenties. Um, mostly from the cotton people. You know, I could talk about hemp for the last next two hours quite easily. So, um, but yeah. 
Well, wasn't hemp a victim of the war on drugs because it's basically well that looks the same as the regular marijuana? Yeah, yeah, it's 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 the it's it's the cousin of marijuana. Obviously, it, it's it's just a strain of marijuana that you can't get high can't you can't get high off. Um, it's grown at the same time as cannabis. Um, so the thing is, um, you can just grow hemp, and that's what they used to do. They used to grow hemp, and and hemp was you know it was the earliest known man-made fiber. We've been using it for ten thousand years. They found it in like sort of like in sort of Mesopotamia, and um, it's it's we're using it earlier than cotton. But because of the stigma in the last few hundred hundred years, and mostly from the cotton like lobbyists, and cotton had a had a had a costing that didn't make sense. They were using slave labor to pick cotton. It was artificial pricing when it came to it, and you know hemp is not the easiest fiber to work to work with for uh, for sure. So yeah, there's an extra process involved. To extract the fibers, so it's like a degumming process. But it, once you get over that, it's amazing. It's amazing. So you know we've been using it much more earlier than cotton, but cotton only became fashionable and more easier because it was mostly because of slave labor. I'll be honest with you. So, um, but then once that finished, of course, and then the artificial pricing still remained. You know, if you actually price up cotton, really price it, price it properly, like how much water has been used, how much energy has been used, how long it takes nine months to grow cotton, hemp takes four. It, it's if you do the actual analysis it doesn't actually make sense at all why we're using it it doesn't make sense the cost or what we're selling it for all the farmers practically break even if they if they make money growing it and all the countries that are growing it we're just kind of like sort of like exploiting them so yes there's cotton being grown in australia and all the rest of it yes 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 and those those prices are but you know you buy australian cotton it's more expensive so you know so it's one of these things it's 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 a real shame what's going on, but um, isn't yeah? I don't know what the question was. We've gone on a massive rant, but yeah. Uh, well, I think we are sort of seeing a comeback from hemp, um, sort of minimal amounts in very specialist fabrics and so forth. Now, I've been looking for hemp genes for the last ten years because yeah. I have a huge faith in that. No, but no, we're it's seeing not it like, really happening. I've, I've been at the forefront of it, so I've been um, convincing loads of mills in the Far East all over Pakistan and India to move over to hemp. And I think I've nearly like succeeded. So um, last year, the Pakistani government legalized hemp. Um, now, most of the world's genes are made in Pakistan, if you didn't know. So the fact it's been legalized, we're going to see a lot more genes in the next three to four years that are being made out of hemp. Now, not 100% hemp. Hemp is still expensive. The more people choose hemp, the cheaper it's going to going to like become. So, you know, there's even Candiani are experimenting with it. Every single mill... I know of is experimenting in hemp only because they know it's it's 50 times better than cotton and you can get a new type of hemp called a cottonized hemp which I'll be honest with you anyone that uses cottonized hemp you would not notice you would not notice you would not notice hemp at all it's remarkable so it's just been spun differently I've added a tiny bit of cotton in it and well a slightly different process that was invented in like the 1980s and I've done I've done a lot of hemp based collections in the last few years and there's a groundbreaking one I did that launched in April this year called Bast recast it was a 10 cell hemp hybrid and it was unbelievable so i've been doing a lot of hemp uh, based collections in denim and it's been a lot of fun a lot of fun but no there's a future in hemp for sure so hemp might actually be a better avenue than the organic cotton organic cotton now sorry to, to break everyone all, all, all our listeners here is a slight myth now to explain what i mean by that is only one percent of the world's cotton is really organic that's if it is that if it that's if it is like organic one percent so if a zara or h&m saying they're using organic it's most likely sorry bs it's not going to be organic 
because there's not there's hard, hardly hardly there's hardly none of it around so then that's why you know a lot of people say they're not using organic any anymore even though they've visited the ginner or they've went to the, the to, so to really say you're organic it's such a small percentage and i can back that up from the transformers like sort of like foundation they've done a whole cotton myth thing that only got launched about two weeks ago it's like cotton you know organic cotton yes you can get it it just isn't that widely widely available that people are saying that this collection is made with organic it most likely isn't so i'm sorry to say it's it's half of it's half of it's like bs really i think if you have a suspicious mind you might already have worked that out because at the time when it sort of became a thing there was suddenly an awful lot of it around you, know, you get you get a collection from Primark and it's thirty quid and it's made with organic cotton. You have to question it. You know, you same thing. Like I remember seeing uh, there's a there's a type of loom. Um, there's a type of selvage denim you can get, which is a fake selvage. It's called tuck-in selvage. You might not be aware be aware of it. It's made on a really wide loom, and they singe on a selvage tape on the outside of of the fabric. And this singed material, this tape, is at the one centimeter mark. So when you make a pair of jeans, your seam allowances are one cm. So most of the jeans that you see on the high street that are selvage probably aren't even selvage at all. So they're fake selvage. And you know, and I remember seeing a jean at Primark and the Jack Jones, and they had a tag on it saying "Made with organic cotton, made on a selvage vintage loom," and a nice old picture of a Draper Draper X free. And I knew instantly what fabric it was. I turned it around. And I went, "Oh dear!" So it, it's a lot of miscommunication, greenwashing. You have to question it all. You have to be, if it's too good to be true, it's too good to be true, you know? And, um, so I only know that, I only know that from experience. There's so much of it going around. There's so much missing misinformation. And that's why it's important for designers like myself to whistleblow quite a lot of these other designers as well. I do it cause I'm independent, so I can do it. But, um, there's a lot of, there's a lot, there's a lot of it, unfortunately. I have noticed that there's a lot more Italian denim around these days, uh, and it's well massively hyped really mm. but i have to admit that sort of looking at the italian denim it is absolutely perfectly woven uniform of color yeah but there's sort of nothing there and then i sort of pull out the old japanese stuff no. with all slubby and uneven it, and it's the characteristic of the fabric so it's a characteristic of the guy who's like who's like weaving it so that's why I can easily spot a Japanese fabric to a Pakistani fabric to an Indian fabric to an Italian fabric quite quickly. I, I know I can easily even guess what loom they've made it on, but that's only because I'm a designer who looks at fabrics nearly every single day. Um, yes, Italian fabrics, you must remember, they pride themselves on being perfect. They, they have superb fabrics with a great shine. They, they're very luxe for fabrics. Uh, they're more open-end than our Japanese friends. There's nothing wrong with what they're doing. There's a Pacific customer who likes that, you know, I've got cousins of mine and brother-in-laws of mine who, who love denim to have a Pacific look, you know, um, and that's fine. But, you know, you and I like slubby textures, stuff from the 40s and 50s. Um, we love imperfections, that kind of thing. In the 80s, you know, in the 70s and 80s, when they got rid of all these old looms, and they did, they got, they got, they got rid, they got all our American friends at, at Cone and some of the other mills that had all these older looms, they got rid of all of these old shuttle looms and the older looms only because they were very temperamental. They caused problems. They, you know, you have to change the shuttle every few minutes. You have to have hundreds of workers manning these machines. So when they optimized for these newer machines in the seventies and eighties, um, they went with a newer type of cotton it, that it made sense to them as you know, it, they weren't, they didn't do anything wrong. 
that's what the, you know look at designer denim look at denim from the 80s and early 80s and early 90s there's a pacific look to it you, you can spot it a mile off is that salt and peppery kind of look and that's because of the open end yarn but they had to invent a different loom to accept this yarn so it's like it's only recently in, in the early 2000s mid 2000s where we've really looked looked at looked at older methods of spinning and like we and like weaving and inventing newer types of machines to make those old looking types of fabrics so uh, but no I've, i i have no problem with canziani or some of the other mills because they they do something that's that's needed you know they they're moving they're moving on if you look canziani mill in italy that one of the best mills on the, on the planet um they use salvage looms they use non-salvage they've got they've they've advanced some of the newest like tech technologies when it comes to tensile and rubber you know, they made the first um they made a denim that won the ipma design award last year or maybe two years ago it was the most sustainable fabric that ever got made literally it was like um 50 percent lyocell and 50 percent like sort of like refibra now uh, lyocell is like tensile but the other half was recycled cotton mixed with tensile so they'd made a fabric that was not using any virgin like material whatsoever and you and I would probably love it. So, you know, so what they're doing is quite important. Whether or not it's a denim for uh, a workwear brand or something, it might not might not be the handwriting that the guy needs. It might need something slubby from a Japanese or Chinese mill instead. It's just one of these things. So. Hmm. Well, that's the, that's the thing, isn't it? That uh, whilst uh, you have the sort of heritage denim brands, which are sort of very specialist and expensive and elusive, and um, probably ninety nine percent of jeans made are not that type of jean at all. Oh, no, they're not. They're wearing a very small minority. But what we're doing influences the entire market. You know, if we come up with a denim that can be laser friendly, for instance, and it, you don't need much treatment to make it come alive. That's awesome. You can put that knowledge into other fabrics. So at the end of the day, you're using less dye to make the denim. You're using a specific type of chemical, which is really sustainable. There are newer technologies now that exist to make fabrics more easier to wash down. So for a person who wants to have their gene come alive with a fire effect, or you can engineer that fabric and spin it and also use a specific kind of indigo dye sustainably to do that. So it's, it's, Honestly, it's such a fun time to be a designer and uh, a garment, garment like sort of, or like sort of like technician. Couldn't be in a best, best place. You know, I tell all young designers now that you've joined at the right time. It's so fun. It's so fun, um, and it's very scary if you ever go to a trade show and you go to all of the mills. They're all doing ex such experimental denim that it's shocking. It's like you don't know where to begin, so you just have to make your own choices. But you know, um, but there's no right or wrong really. You just have to follow your gut. But yeah. The older methods are just not good at all. We have to walk away from them. But, yeah. yeah. I, d I did notice there was one British uh, denim company. They were using a – they weren't very specific about where it came from, but it, it was Italy. Mm. But it was a, a denim that was made with antibacterial treatment so that you could wear your jeans for longer without washing them. Yeah. There's a, there's a company called the Rudolph Group. They've invented the chemical process or chemical that you, it's like a silver based chemical that has antimicrobial, antibacterial. I'm, my, my, I might be wrong here, but they, they, there are obviously hemp does, hemp does that automatically. Hemp has got antimicrobial and antibacterial properties, but you can get finishes that you can put on denim that you can't even feel. They're like embedded into the yarn that do that. Um, I also did a gene that was completely glow in the dark from a process of spinning. 
not with a chemical, but it's the spinning process to make a glowing glass. There's so many different things you can do when you spin fabrics. Right? Spinning is the main thing, really. And people don't realize it. They just think, oh, it's done on a, on a specific loom. That's it. No, it's all about spinning. It's the cotton processes, cotton cotton concepts is what I call them, where you get cottons and from all over different types, different parts of the world, and you spin them in a certain way. And then yeah, you, can, you can create that effect. But no, um, there's many cool things you can do now at the spinning stage to have antimicrobial or, or even genes that help you, um, you know, so there's so many crazy things that you are going on, but they all cost something. They're not all for free. So yeah, I think there was one person that did a gene that may made you feel better. They had some had some chemical in it, which you know it's crazy. It's crazy, but it's true. There, there are people that are experimenting with stuff like that. That does sound very worrying. As does it's the quite worrying. Microbial it's the people stuff. that sell water and you go, this water makes you feel better because it's got this microbe in it. It's the same kind of thing. Like there's a denim that someone made that had. That was sprayed with like CBD. No, it didn't sprayed with CBD on the inside. So when you wear it, the CBD goes into your skin. So it's just um, yeah, it's endless. It's endless. What's going on? What's going on? Yeah. Uh, now, uh, a few years ago, um, you, there was also a British denim that started being made, but Hewitt's. Hewitt, yeah, Chris, he's done a fantastic job. Um, I've known Chris, goodness, more than more than fifteen years or so, or twelve years. I don't know. It was a long time ago. I remember buying a machine from him. There we go. I met him because he was a machine seller. So I bumped, I found him on eBay. He's selling a machine. I went to visit him. And then in the, the two minutes I was in his house picking up the machine, he, we had the conversation and he found out I was a denim designer. And he goes, oh, no, I'm going to be making denim fabric. I remember him telling me that many years ago. And I was like, what? What? He goes, yeah, I'm going to make British denim. And he achieved it. You know, he, he, he found the looms... Uh, up in the north of England, he managed to to get the get the get the right type of yarn. He got he managed to put it on the beam. He he made his first run. I'm probably like, I don't know, four or five years ago now. It's a long time ago. He achieved this. He achieved this goal a long time ago. But no, he's he's on a really amazing journey actually, where he's um going to be doing something quite amazing in the next few years, all for British denim. But no, he he's made amazing denim fabric, uh, all made on the Northrop loom. I don't know if you know the history of like Northrop, but Okay, everyone always talks about, in America, the Draper X3 looms. They're the looms that Levi's made their fabric on. They're the looms that Cone Denim used, the Draper X3 looms. The Draper X3s were invented by a guy called Northrop, who was a British en- British engineer. He left Draper and set up his own, own company, and they're the looms that he made. So the looms that Chris is using are Northrop looms. So they're a, a continuation of the Draper X, X3. Pretty much the same era, but they're British looms. And they're awesome. So the story in itself is amazing. And um, more people should be supporting him. And um, some companies like sort of Hyatt Denim and some others have, have also Denham and some other people, even myself at Endrime, we've, we've all been supporting him. Um, but no, he needs more bigger players to support him. But no, he's, a, he's, in, he's, a, he's literally at the scratching point of something quite amazing. He's, he's about to build a proper industry. So it's going to be quite amazing. Hmm. I, have, uh, I have seen his denim and it does look... Uh wonderful in that almost looks like japanese way oh yeah he's got some linen qualities that you and i would love honestly really amazing remember, remember chris is a, a fabric guy he, he's a he used to sell vintage garments i think he still does he's into old garments he understands how to read fabric so obviously um that's the thing when you end up meeting all these technicians or these mill owners some of them are just people with money they don't know anything about fabric really 
So Chris is someone who's come from a background of knowing about vintage first. So when it came to designing his own own fabric, of course, he had piles of swatches of garments and goes, this is the type of thing I want to try and create. And he's on a journey that's involving hemp, that's involving tensile, that's involving garments made fully in like the UK, fabrics that are woven and spun, um, even grown in the UK. So it's a big thing. Obviously, you know, now at, at the moment, you know, he's getting some of his components from somewhere else. He's getting his yarn from Italy or from wherever in Turkey. There's nothing wrong in that. Like, you know, even our friends at Black Horse Lane, you know, their, their journey has been, we've been, you know, I helped them at the beginning. You know, their journey is to make a pair of jeans within the end, within the, the, within the M25 in, in, in like London. And they achieved it. But you must understand most of their fabric is from either Italy or Japan. Their metal trims are from Europe or Italy. It's just put together in the UK. Like the whole made in UK or the made in USA story, is it that important? I don't know if it is, personally speaking. I just want things to be made right. I just want people to be paid like paid like properly. So that sort of nicely eases us into this uh, bit I do with all my guests about um I mean, sustainability is a big thing now. It's bandied about. No one really knows what it means any longer because it's taken on so many meanings. Yeah. Uh, but part of it has been sort of buy better, buy less, and people are at least spending more. But for me, a large part of this is if you're going to buy something, you want to use it up. You want to use it lots. You want to really like it. But for you, what goes into making a garment that will be sort of truly loved and used? Oh man, I, I just, um, if you asked that question to me 10 years ago, it'd be a very different answer to now. But for me, it just has to be made right now. It has to be made with the same philosophy that garments were made more than 150 years ago. I really don't like how garments are made right now with overlocking and cheap manufacturing, cheap pocketing. These are just cost cutting methods. And, and, you know, um, there's a friend of mine like Janelle who fixes and repairs jeans. And most of the time it's just pockets that are blown out or a button's fall or zipper is broken and that then the gene is useless so mm. slightly it just has to be made with better components and it will last longer simple and you know and, and for me just think people just have to ask for things to be made better you know and if you if you all say that even the likes of primark i remember seeing a primark gene for six quid and i buy cheap jeans I, I design for these high street companies too and i often buy them to examine them how they're made now, I remember seeing this gene. It was six euros, this gene. And I bought it. It had tailored belt loops. It, it had real buttons and rib, rib, real buttons and rib, like washer and bar, like rivets. So it's remarkable what you can do at such a like low end of the scale. But then the pocketing was crap. You know, after one wash, it would probably break. And so it, it's, we need to start making products even at lower end much more better, much more better. But yeah. Hmm. I don't know if so that answered your question or not. Well, yeah, I mean, make things better. Uh, yeah. Make things better, educate people more about how things should uh, be made. It's a bit like food, you know, you, you wonky fruit and the rest of it, even all the defects. Like for me, when I make a leather patch, for instance, I know now when I make my own leather patches, there's always some that are like defective or the, the, the burn didn't go on right or whatever. But you look at a Levi's jean or look at any other company and you go, wow, those leather patches all look identical. That isn't really the case. There's many uh, defective patches that just get thrown away so for me, I use everything. I use even the like defective ones on the actual garment. And I clearly state this is the nature of how this garment is. So you're going to get some things that are slightly defective. It's fine, though. So it's like it's accepting it and being quite open about it. And um, But making things properly is, for me, is, the, is one of the things that I've been 
I've been doing forever. So for ever since I was a, a trained designer, ever since I was a student, ever since I became a graduate, ever since I've been a real designer for 20, 20 years, is I've always, even in the companies I've worked for, I've always pushed for making things better. Even the one only company I've worked for where it was the opposite, it was that I was working at Dunhill, an amazing uh, company, the, the, the Dunhill. And it's the only company I worked for where they said to me, Morsin, can you make it more expensive? I've never had that since. Can you make it more expensive? So think it so it's always the opposite for me because how can we make it cheaper? The only company I worked for was like, can we look at better pocketing or can we buy more expensive trim? You know, so yeah, it's never happened to me since. Can we make it more expensive? <laughs> That's brilliant. Because mm. uh, I think modern garments use a lot fewer parts than they used, say, a hundred years ago. Um, you're talking about the trims, or you're talking about? Well, like, I mean, so, sort of like shirts um, were more complex cuts before. Yes and no. I, I've come across shirts that are 200 years old that are zero waste, for instance, that have no waste at all. So actually, um, that's something that I've been looking at quite heavily in, in the last uh, two years is converting everything that I'm doing into more zero waste philosophy. Now, what does zero waste mean? It, it's basically if you've got a roll of fabric and you put a pattern against it, there's always some wastage in the middle or in between all the pattern pieces there's waste. It's now designing garments that have absolutely no waste at all. So when you put the, the, the lay plan down or the, the, where the patterns are, when you cut it all out, there's actually nothing left, left over. And um, that's actually, honestly speaking, where the way that things were made like in the past. Like the oldest known trouser that they found on a mummy in, in China was a zero-waste garment. It's like more than 5,000 years old or something. So it's like, it's nothing new, but more, more and more younger designers who haven't been inflicted with the ways that we're working are opening up to doing more zero waste ways of working. So having things that completely disappear when you throw them in um, a garbage heap or a, a compost heap or whatever. So, and making garments that are zero waste. So you don't lose, you don't waste anything. So that's, uh, so anyway, so going back to your shirt idea, yes, of course, people have always been just cutting things out and throwing away the waste or re-spinning it into another fabric. That That's true. But if we can eliminate that, uh, how they used to do it then that's only a good good thing so um but no i think components have always chopped and changed how the order of genes like 15 to 18 pieces you know people will say this gene has 15 15 pieces in it sure but you know it's not always like that as i said to you from the 1870s to the 9 9 1920s the basic five pocket changed quite considerably like how many components were used cinch buckle was removed belt loops were added extra pocket was added here the internals were changed. The waistband construction was changed. The fly construction was changed. Um, it, it's everything has changed just to speed things up, really. Um, but yeah, it was uh, odd you should mention zero waste because my wife is a keen so seamstress, and she's been uh, making these uh, zero waste kimono type shirts yeah, exactly. recently. That, that kimono is a great absolutely example. no waste at all. No waste at all. But I, I a remarkable. Way I of did. I did a 10-piece collection for Cone, Cone Denim, that got released last week. And that was with um, 10 different garments and nine different fabrics, I believe. Each one was completely zero waste. And that was trucker jackets, type two, basic five pockets, like the wide ones, the slim ones. Um, I did the whole thing. So I proved the point that you can do a collection that's zero waste. And it's, it saves money. It saves time. It's still made the same way. It's not like a, a weird gene that doesn't look like a gene it looks like a normal five pocket but you would never believe it's zero waste and that's the that's the trick most people think zero waste they think ill-fitting garments and um baggy shapes and weird weird whatever 
if you get a, a talented designer who understands about denim to do a zero waste collection, it's remarkable what can be achieved. So um, that's what I did for the last six months with a zero waste collection. So I'm quite proud of it actually. And apparently I learned also over the weekend that Levi's did a zero waste like collection. One of their red collections was zero waste back in 2004, 2005, but they never ever marketed it as a zero waste collection, which is crazy. So there I was thinking I was one of the first designers to do it. But of course, Levi's, our friends at Levi's did, did one first. So as a, everyone's always done something, something before, whether or not it's got the attention that it, sh it should have done is, an, is, an, is, an, is another matter. But no, for me, uh, sustainably finishing garments, sustainably making garments and zero waste, non-polyester, non more tensile, more hemp are the future of our industry. All right. So I was going to ask you what the future of denim is, but <laughs> I, th <laughs> I suppose you already answered it there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but um, if you were sort of uh, in the market for a pair of hemp denim these days, I mean, who is uh, at the forefront? Who's doing there? the best? Okay. Um, well, our Chinese friends have been the the ones that have been experimenting more with hemp only because they they've been using it far far longer than all of us. They they've got industries already making paper and other 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 materials. But actually, some of our Pakistani friends um, are doing great things in hemp. Candiani in Italy are doing great things with hemp. Cone denim in America, who've got uh, their Mexico plant and Chinese plant, are doing great things with hemp. As I said, it's only just been legalized only about a year ago in Pakistan. Um, just watch this space. I think. I think Levi's released their first hemp collection only about a couple of months months ago, and that was like a, a, a could have been a fifteen or twenty percent blend. I did a hundred percent hemp gene about a year ago, hundred percent, but it's just too expensive. So you know, I did it just to to try it, and it looks amazing. You you would fall in love with it if you saw the fabric. Um, but so um, not too far away, I think um, sort of sort of like sort of, there's a mill in Pakistan called like called 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 like called, called like Navina. Um, they got two two factories, one in Lahore and one in Karachi. They're both experimenting with hemp. Levi's use a lot of like Novena fabric, so it, it, it's only a matter of time when all the gaps and the H and M's and everything, everyone starts using hemp. Only a matter of time. But our Japanese friends have been experimenting with hemp quite a lot, especially our like mills, like sort of like sort of, sort of mills like Kaihara and like Kuruki have been using like linen for many years, so they understand about the fiber texture and how to weave 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 with it. It's just whether or not there's a business case for it. Because, you know, these companies, they're very much careful about what they're doing because they, they, they know their customers, they know their clients. So it's only if the client asks for it, then they might do it. So I'm, I'm navigating it very carefully and convincing mills in the Far East to experiment more with hemp. Then the people like Levi's and Gap and the rest of it will start buying it and then it will, fil it will filter through. So, uh, yeah, that's what I'm doing. I'm like whispering. So, yeah, quite funny. I see we've been uh, we've been going on for some time now. So, um, in closing, is there anything you'd like to mention to push? Anything exciting coming up? Yeah, I, I will be doing a couple of books next year. I'm doing one about making, um, which I've been working on for a few years. It's about how to make a pair of jeans. There's a few books that have been released in the last six six months, which ups which upset me slightly because I've been talking about mine for years. But then I realised very quickly that these books have been designed by non denim people. So it's the Jersey person that's done a denim book, and so. All they know is one method. I'm going to be teaching all of the methods because I, I teach how to make pairs of jeans at, at various like universities. I know every way of making a pair of jeans from the 1870s method to the 1920s from the various big, big brands. So the book that I'm doing covers every type of known method and it will come with patterns and it will come 
it was pretty awesome what I'm working on. And Cone Denim are sponsoring it. So that that's that's happening next year. And I'm also doing a range of archive books. I've got an archive of more than more than two thousand pieces here in my studio. I photographed about two hundred of them already. So I'm just um, editing the first book right now. It's a, it's a Christmas project. Hopefully, sometime in the summer next year, we'll get released v- volume one. But I've got garments that go down to the 1800s up until quite recently. So it's not a, a kind of a Bible. Let's say a um, a like Rin Tanaka book or something. It, it will be lots of high res pictures, lots of storytelling about where I found the garment, uh, more historical like references. It's mostly a companion book. Because I always show 80 to 90 samples every year in my workshops. I show physical samples in my workshops to all my students. So it was a way of documenting it so they have a book at the end of the course. So that's what it was. It was just a way of documenting it. So I'm getting quite, I'm getting quite tired lugging these samples into these uh, uh, studios and schools. So I thought, let's just do a book and then maybe people can benefit f- from it. And as I've still got the knowledge and I seem to remember where half these things came from, is beneficial because I I'm not getting any any younger, so I think it's better that I start writing down where I bought it, how much it cost me, how I found it, what's the story behind it. That is, well, I give you one story: is a garment that I got in Greensboro, and there was a pile of these overalls, pile of them, probably about twenty of them. They're all identical, and I got it out, and it was like it had so much starch on the garment that I couldn't even open it. It would, it would crack and probably tear, you know. And um, the person told me that the wife. Um, her husband died, but every week she was still washing the overalls and start starching them as a, so it's, it's, like, it's always a story behind everything, you know? So, yeah. you know, so this garment's got major crease lines where it's been folded, you know, and, and it's quite remarkable and it's super shiny and super silky. It's been so much starch on it. You can't even feel the slubs anymore. It's like, it, it's like it's got a resin on it. It's really funny. Um, <laughs> so there's a story behind everything and these look amazing as well. So good resource for young designers. Because many of the pieces that I've got are, are like museum quality, so it's, it's yeah. People are always shocked when I bring them in. I go, yeah, you can feel it, you can touch it. I even got someone to open one of the jeans up because they didn't believe me it, it, it was salvage. Because some overalls back in the day, they're all salvage. Every fabric was salvage. So this student didn't believe me. He goes, I can't find any salvage on the garment. And I said, why don't you take this unpicker and open that seam up? And he opened the seam up, and then the two salvages kind of like appeared. So um, yeah. You couldn't do that to uh, a like V and A piece, but yeah, well, why not? It's all about education for me. It sounds to me like you're going to be opening yourself up for criticism again, like you did with um, being so open about the machinery. Probably, probably. But the thing is, it, it's it's a really dark world. Everyone doesn't like to share. Sometimes I, I'm very different. The way I was brought, I remember at university, my tutors telling me never to share anything. Don't share where your next meeting is. You're going to visit someone, don't give away knowledge, don't tell where you got your research from. But I believe in sharing it because the more people know about this stuff, the better it is for ev- ev- everyone. You know, um, I don't believe in that hiding. It's going to die with me, unfortunately. It will die, all this stuff I've gained. What's the point? What's the point? So share the knowledge away. Other designers will, you know, even the collections that I've been doing in the last 10 years, I share my wash recipes, I share the fabric codes, even my own brand, the Endrime. 10 years ago when I started, I was one of the first brands to list all the machinery I used inside my jean. I listed where the fabric came from. People would, even my business partner at the time goes, oh, let's not share that because people might copy you. And I went, sort of like, good luck to them. Being copied is an amazing thing. So um, I'm not at all, I don't mind people copying, but people haven't copied what I've done because it's quite complicated. So it's not, 
So yeah, I've encouraged well, it. Go. I've encouraged it. So they please copy, but they don't. They they're like this is too impossible. Your pattern cutting is insane. Why would we even attempt it? And I'm like, exactly. So um, but yeah, the trick is to design garments that don't look like they don't look like they're complicated. They're very simple. When you zoom right in, you realize, oh my god, that selvage detail, or that turn up detail, or that beautiful circle bar tack, or all these small things that are very difficult for other designers to do. So yeah, or why not? Now, there is one thing we haven't touched upon yet, but it has been mentioned a few times, tensile. Now, to me, that is sort of an evolution of what I quite disparagingly refer to as viscose, which is basically synthetics made from cellulose pulp, Yep. bamboo being a typical one. Yep. Can you tell me a bit more about it? Yeah. So um, I've been doing a lot of work um, – with Tencel Lyacell for about three years now. So, um, so there's a uh, there's um, a company called Lensing which which uh, make Tencel Lyacell. That's the brand name for it. And yeah, it it's basically um, fiber that comes from trees. So the actual wood, the wood itself, not not the bark, but the actual wood. And uh, it's grown in. Uh, they make sure that all the all the trees that they use comes from sustainably managed forests. So. Uh, it's the same industry that make paper. So it, it's, these trees were never made. Uh, these trees are only made for the reader, for the resource of making pulp. So there's not like old trees or, or, or amazing forests that they've cut down. These are forests that are managed, that are sustainably grown for a commodity, which is the tree itself. So first of all, it's not a, let's get rid of the myth that we're cutting down trees to feed us. No, these are made especially for us. Um, so they're grown in sustainably grown forests and they're managed really, really well. And um, they, they, they get the trees all over Europe and parts of Asia, Asia, Asia too, from my understanding. And so basically it's a process where they make the trees and they make them into wood chips. And then it goes through a process where it, it gets submerged into a, a like solution. And that solution actually makes it into a, into a, like cell, into a cellulose. And you can do this with anything, actually. Uh, sort of, all cellulose is everywhere, like it's all, it's all, all around us. But trees are quite good because their footprint is not so big, and obviously they grow really tall. Obviously, if you got the same amount of cellulose from cotton or any other fiber, you need football fields to cover the amount you would do from a from a from a tree. So that that's one positive thing. And also, the great thing is these trees are all like rain fed. So as they're rain fed, there's no additional water being used like you do with cotton or hemp or anything like that so um there's lots of positive lots of positives when it comes to water like sort of like consumption and the amount that you can get from one tree to make a lot of like cellulose and then what it goes through a process which is uh not so secret but it's like a process where they basically push it through like sort of like spinnerets they make the, the filament fiber and then they cut it to any length that you like so in the cotton and denim world we use a certain length like a, a long staple length you know you get slightly different lengths uh to make and the longer the length the more uh, uh luxurious the fiber the fiber is with tensile lysel you can control exactly how long that's going to be which is awesome so then obviously certain looms can only um accept a certain length when you're spinning so they make it to the exact length that it needs to be so what it but, but the result is actually ten tensile lysel it's a very very strong fiber it only got invented you know, the latest uh, version of it only got invented about 25 to 30 years ago. So it's fairly new. But now many people are realizing that 
It's a great alternative to cotton. It's a great fiber. You can mix with cotton and you can mix it with, with wool. You can mix it with anything. So it's a great, even like polyester, you can actually mix it with, with like anything. It gives a lot of strength. But the amazing thing is of the water savings and also the strength fiber. It's really, 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 really strong. So, um, you know, so people have been experimenting with it a lot in the denim world and in the fashion world. And, and I remember when I started coming across Tencel probably 10 years ago, I thought it was too luxe. It was very shiny, very lightweight. Um, I wouldn't, I wouldn't have seen it in a denim product, but they actually, the tenth, the parent company, Tencel actually came to me and said, would you mind helping us design a denim collection using Tencel? So I was like, okay. So we started experimenting with it. We used nine different mills, so Candiani mill, Kaihara, Orta, all over the world. We used some of the best denim mills and we constructed den- denim, wove denim using 10, 10, 10 cell. And we made the most slubbiest denim you would imagine. It's, it's quite amazing. I, it completely blew my mind three years ago when I did this project. And ever since then, I've been completely converted, like completely converted. Because for me, I know being a denim designer for 20 years, we can't carry on using, we can't carry on consuming cotton as we've been doing. We have to, we have to move away from polyester. Ideally, we should be using more hemp. So these are all things that I've been realizing slowly, but actually Tencel is already available now. The, the, the parent company is going full steam ahead. They've made them, they're making a massive plant in Thailand. They've got plants all over the world. They've even got a plant in like England, which is amazing. So, and, and they're, they're literally putting all their chips in, literally in like Tencel and many more brands are believing in it. And I believe so as well. There, there isn't anything, you know, the only negative recently is that it might've been too shiny or whatever, but that's, that's even, they've even sorted that out now. So they've made a new version of Tencel, which is non-shiny. So all the people that used to say, oh, it's a bit too shiny, it's very feminine looking. Actually, those arguments are out of the window now. And if you come across most denim, which is made from Tencel, you would never believe it. You would think it is, is like a normal denim. So it's definitely amazing. And the pricing also is amazing. It's working to its favor. Cotton prices have been steadily increasing and Tencel prices have been quite stable. So many more brands are flipping over to Tencel only because it's it's slightly more cheaper, which is hilarious. So a more sustainable option, which is better for the planet, which is cheaper. You couldn't, you couldn't it's too good to be true, but it, it's happening. So it's really cool. Of course, the money side of it will be utterly compelling for for the spreadsheet uh, jockeys. Oh man, it's all about it's all about those cents, you know. If you if you're ever in if you're any kind of uh, production or you're making anything um it's all about the few cents that that you save and you know um it's been quite remarkable and i've been using a lot of tencel in the last three years of course i've been working for them but i've been really pushing it i've been really doing all the latest uh, sustainable washing treatments with it it's washed really well it also it also withstands laser pp all of the all of the harsh chemicals as well because cotton is also a like cellulose which people forget about so it's made from the same substance as, as what cotton is but it's just um it's just more sustainable when it comes to water savings. And they've come up with a new way of dyeing um, Tencel Lysel. It's like, it's like more of a, a, a like model process where they, in the, in the, in the solution part, they, they, they call it the dope. They call it the dope. When, it, when it's in a solution, before they make the fiber, it's called a dope solution. And they've managed to inject indigo into that solution and then, and then like sort of like extract it. So now there's newer ways of doing even more water savings because if you don't know the process of dyeing yarn in, in massive vats and you know it's it's a it, it's crazy amount of water that's used 
this process where you dye the dope dope part of the yarn, you can actually extract it so it's already an indigo color before you weave it. So it's like 99% water savings, energy savings are off the planet. So the technology that 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 that, that um, Lensing and other really great companies are doing it is quite, quite remarkable and and really um, you know Tenso Lyocell it won the like Ipma Award you know for their most sustainable denims. It's like it's it's a it's an event that happens every five years and they made a, a denim together with Candiani and that was a Tenso uh, Lyocell like fabric. So it's the most sustainable denim that's ever been created has been with a Tenso denim at the moment. But hemp is not too far away and other cool, other cool things from like from like bacteria indigo. And, the the like technology side in weaving is quite remarkable and it's changing every couple of months so yeah very very cool i was going to say something now about um, it's good that the old viscose production has um has improved to such a point where it is sustainable now but i sense that my listeners are probably wondering about another aspect here where you mentioned that the the tensile fibers are already indigo dyed and then you're having the hemp mm. fibers and will the denim guys still get their mad fades oh absolutely right so they've been um this newer type of modal that they've invented which is dope dyed with with indigo it still fades similar to a ring dyed garment i know i know every meal from candiani to cone uh even to our, our chinese friends that everyone's experimenting with this newer type of like technology because we can't carry on doing it how we have been doing it don't get me wrong there's always a place for an artisan rope dyed denim, and you and I both love that. And that's gonna we're gonna carry on buying it, and it's always gonna be a place for it. But there are other solutions coming up now, which are are, are woven differently, that are dyed slightly differently, that to you and I would still look like an indigo denim that that fades. And the important factor is we all know there's no point inventing inventing a denim which doesn't fade. What's the point? It would just just become a chino or some outerwear fabric. So that's the beauty of denim is when it's got that ring dyed effect where it's got a white a white core and it fades that that's my you know i i certainly don't want to be using a denim which doesn't fade very well that, that defeats the purpose but um no um it's coming about and more and more people are going to be coming across a lot of these newer tech, tech tech technologies even in like the high street because at the end of the day they are cheaper and better for the planet so we all have to be walking um walking and doing that more more than more of that kind of work because we can't you know, the industry that we're in is, is very harmful, the amount of chemicals that are used to even dye fabrics, you know, which is, this, we're talking about denim here, but think about the leather, think about the leather industry and everything else. There's horrible chemicals that are used. So if we can eliminate most of those chemicals, most of those chemicals and eliminate how we wash jeans, as you know, as I said earlier, not everyone wears jeans that are raw. They're always pre-washed or they've been rinsed or they've had some treatment on. So there are lots of processes to eliminate half of those techniques or even 90% of those techniques and you still get the same like result. So um, for me as a, as a, as a, still as a young designer, I, I'm, I'm, advo I'm advocating to try and do these, these other new like techniques. Cause if I can, I remember when I was at Timberland and that, 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 that company is owned by VF, we decided to change all our cotton to organic cotton as a company wide policy. VF control about five to 6% of cotton production. So it's a huge factor what we, even though it's only five percent, but it changed. It changed. You know, a small part of the industry changed overnight when we decided to switch over. So imagine if we all switched to a tensile lyocell, or we decided not to use polyester going forward and mixed hemp with it instead. It, it would overnight. It would change every everything. So it's a small steps, but really, but um, there's some amazing things that are happening that are very very exciting. 
It's interesting to see that on the one hand, as consumers, we're being encouraged now to buy less and sort of rein in our consumerism. Mm. Uh, and you'd sort of think that the industry would be getting a bit worried about, well, reduced sales, really. But it's quite clear that they are taking up the fight there. I think there's a lot more, especially because of COVID, everyone's a bit more aware now of um you know, buying things that, that will last a bit more longer in time and making product that's better, better, like constructed. Um, these things are always, there's always been people like myself arguing for better made products, but now all of a sudden it's become a bit more focused going, let's make it slightly more better quality. Let's use a better button that doesn't pop off. Let's just because they know more and more people are really thinking very hard about, you know, a bit like how it was 150, 200 years ago you wouldn't have as many garments you would wear. You know, you would have your best jacket, you would have your best coat, you'd have maybe two or three trousers, and that's about it. You would just rotate these. And if they got worn in or they were broken, you would just like just like repair them. There's a whole, you know, there's a whole uh, movement now of people who like, who like repair garments now and, and get them darned and fixed. And our denim industry has been focused on that quite heavily about, you know, if there's ever a breakage, there's specialists who come and darn your jean for you, who fix your crotch repair or your knee repair. So in some ways, our industry, our denim industry has been leading that a little bit more closely. But going into any kind of shop now, any shop that does hemming services, as I say, they will also have someone who can do like repair as well. So um, it's about keeping the garment that you already have. But yeah, if it can be made slightly better. But yeah, there, there is a slight concern that people are going to be buying less. But I don't think people are buying less. I think um, uh, it's pretty, pretty much back up to the same. Uh, uh, I know speaking to lots of mills and, 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 and factories, they're already back up at 80% capacity from pre-COVID times. So I think we haven't stopped our way of, of our buying garments and buying things, but maybe we're buying more better garments and, and designers and, and business unit people and merchandisers are thinking more closely about better stories, more sustainable attributes, and hopefully better, better made garments. One question I'd like to ask, as you're a denim designer, um, the seams on the inside leg yeah overlocked felled or otherwise oh it, it, that this is this is interesting so it's all about bulkiness now me as a, a designer who makes garments who who prides himself in not using an overlocker i would always say do a felled seam so a felled seam is when both the raw edges are hidden in hidden inside a seam and it's with a twin needle stitch or or, or clever twin needle with i don't know with a twin needle stitch now Obviously, most people would argue going, Mawson, that's very bulky. Uh, let's do a uh, half overlock and it's turned in. And from the outside, it still looks like a twin needle, but from the inside, it's overlocked with a twin needle stitch. So it's, it's, it's you know, it, it's up to the designer's preference. Um, is it going to last longer? I've never had an instance where the inseam has, has uh, unraveled because it's been overlocked. So um that's the argument of it, it being well made and it can be last longer i'm not too sure and i think the overlock overlock stitch um it does exactly that it, it kind of protects it it protects it it overlocks the, the the raw edge and then you can stitch on top of it so uh, the functionality is still the same but uh aesthetically uh, it looks better with a felt seam so apart from being ugly what is your problem with overlocking I just feel um, the overlocker was pretty much invented uh, only to speed up production. So it, it was first invented just at this turn of the like, century, became popular in the 20s and, th and, and like, 30s, 
Um, many designers think it's a remarkable machine. You know, it cuts the fabric for you at the same time. You can be a lazy designer and just do really wonky seams and you overlock the whole thing together and it cleans it up with a, with a lovely clean stitch. So it's a, that's why you see it a lot in fast, fast fashion because you, you can have it on a really fast like setting. You, you, you can zip through a garment really, really like so quickly. But the problem is it, it was literally only invented to speed up production. But anyone who prides themselves on things being made like correctly, uh, European tailoring, Jewish immigrant tailoring, British tailoring, you know, all, we, we pride ourselves at making things really well. So we, I don't think there's any need for an, for an overlocker, I'll be honest with you, especially if you know how to construct garments. You just fill the seam or use a nice binding, you know, and it just adds a bit of um, quality to the garment. But saying that, I have, I have used an overlocker quite recently on a project and I really enjoyed it. So it, it's, it's, there's always a place for it. But if you're, if you're selling a denim garment and it's 400 euros, I would not expect to see an overlocker inside it personally speaking and i get very frustrated when i do see very premium brands who are really premium using really high premium fabrics that are 20 dollars a meter and it's overlocked inside i get quite upset about it going oh why didn't you just spend that extra five dollars and just finish it properly so i think that it's a bit of a cop-out and i think many people say you know everyone always says that oh we follow the levi's for 501 1947 you know everyone's got their favorite fit and favorite era and that's fine but everyone always thinks the golden period is the 1947 Levi's, for instance. For me, no, the golden period is probably the 1870s or 1890s like Levi's because those were made with, ta with tailoring. They were made proper clean, like clean, like construction. Um, there was also evidences of when, when they didn't use an overlocker, they left the raw, they left the seams raw, which is really quite funny on these early garments. But um, yeah, I don't know. Overlocker to me, if it can be avoided, try to avoid it. But, you know, I, I'm, I, I've been quite, um, I'm becoming a bit more relaxed over using an overlocker. And now 20 years in, 20 years into my like, career, if you see videos of me talking, I openly say that overlocker is completely evil. No, I, there is a place for it. Um, and, you know, sometimes in fast fashion, it's quicker to just do an overlock. That's the reason why these garments can be, af can be affordable for, you know, the average person because they're 50 to 60 pounds, so, which is fantastic. We need to carry on making garments that are affordable. Not everyone can afford a 170 pound jean. So um, we need to make sure that we make products for everyone. Okay. And on that note, I will just say thank you very much for being my guest today. Absolute was, pleasure. Uh, thank you so much, Nick, for allowing me to come on your pod podcast. And yeah, and sort of good luck to you as well. Super. Thanks a lot. And bye-bye. Uh, thank you. Bye-bye. That was all for this week's episode of Garmology, a podcast about clothes and stuff. Thanks to my guest, Mohsin Sayyid. Uh, you can find him on Instagram as uh, Mohsin Sayyid or as Endrime. I'll uh, drop his links in the show notes so you can find them. If you'd like to get in touch with me, welldressedad at gmail.com. You can follow me on Instagram as welldressedad, or you can visit the blog and read articles there about this and that within menswear, etc. at welldressedad.com. If you're interested in supporting the podcast, suggesting guests, or just like to tell me what you think, get in touch, welldressedad at gmail.com. And uh, until next week, bye-bye.